If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to this month's BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Dave Musgrove. And I'm the deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. We're giving away free copies of the magazine to podcast listeners in the UK this month. Find out more later. Meanwhile, coming up in this issue... I'm going to look at individual features, eyes and chins and noses. Professor Gail Owen Crocker is just one of the experts who reveals their latest research on the biotapestry to me. The message of the ring was diametrically opposed to the ethos of the new German Empire. That was Professor Tim Blanning, who's heading back to 1876 in our time machine this month. So this was strategic stuff of the utmost value. And finally, we have an exclusive interview with a man who was involved in making history in himself. Jerry Roberts was a codebreaker at Bletchley Park in the Second World War. Now, before we go to the biotapestry, we have a marvellous offer for podcast listeners in the UK. This, of course, is the podcast of BBC History magazine, and we're not sure if everyone who listens to the podcast has had a chance to read the mag, so we've got a special offer for you. This month, we're giving away a free copy of our July issue to the first 1,000 people to call in. All you need to do is call 0844 848 0098, quoting the code HIFREE08, and you will be sent a free copy of the magazine. Don't forget, there are only 1,000 copies available, so call now to make sure you don't miss out. And that number again is... 0844-848-0098. This offer is only available to UK residents. 
The Biotapestry is surely one of the most recognisable documents in history, charting as it does in glorious technicolour one of the most iconic moments in the British story, the Norman Conquest of England, when Duke William of Normandy sailed over to relieve the last Anglo-Saxon king, Harold, of the throne at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Now, there's a major conference on the tapestry taking place at the British Museum this month, so we've taken the opportunity to consider the latest state of research on it. Michael Lewis is the conference organiser, I asked him what more there was to say about this much-studied source. There's a lot of books, they apologise at the beginning about saying, surely not another book on the Bayer Tapestry, surely everything we know about it is being done. Um, but the fact is, it does interest a lot of people, and people have studied it in lots of different ways. And in recent times, there seems to be an explosion, really, of people trying to interpret it, interpret it in different ways. And I think there is, there's a number of reasons you know, for that. I suppose one of them is that um, the tapestry was taken off display in the 80s and it was completely... Um, it was comp- that they allowed a scientific yeah. um, study, which you know, we, obviously is the first time that's really been a- able to be done. And the results of that are starting to kind of come through in dribs and drabs. Um, and so there's an opportunity there to, to kind of study it more. So what have the tapestry experts been considering? There's been a lot of research done recently on the provenance of the tapestry and who was responsible for making it, and that's the subject we explore in this month's issue of the magazine. Was it made on the orders of William the Conqueror, his half-brother, Odo of Bayer, the defeated Earl Harold's sister, Edith, or someone else entirely? However, there's also been some very close analysis of the detail in the tapestry going on. So Gail Owen Crocker, Professor of Art History at Manchester University, for instance, has been studying the faces. I'm going to be talking about faces. It's generally assumed that there is a buyer artist. Right. The, 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 the unspoken assumption is that it's all drawn by one hand. So I, I've explored that in different ways in my research, but this time I want to look at the treatment of faces. And I started off from the, the point of view that we all recognise certain artists' faces, even when they're supposed to be drawing portraits. It's, it's always a Rembrandt or it's always a Holbein. And I, I know there are brush strokes and other, other techniques as well, but, but basically it's, it's one face. And, and cartoonists too, I mean, they have one face. So I thought, I wonder if I can apply this to the tapestry and see whether it suggests to me that there are different artists at work. And then I'm doing other things with faces. I'm, I'm looking at the fact that the majority of faces are in profile, there's a substantial minority in three-quarter face, but the full face is very rare. When is full face used? Um, then I'm going to look at individual features, eyes and chins and noses, and, and see whether there, I think any of these are being used deliberately to, to make a contrast between figures at particular points. And are faces done in different ways if somebody is an Im, in an important position yeah. from if he is just a soldier in the battle or a, an ancillary rider or something? So, so that's what I'm doing. Now, one of the most famous faces in the tapestry is, of course, that of King Harold himself, notably in the scene where he appears to be receiving an arrow in his eye. That episode has been receiving close attention from one scholar who's going to be at the conference, and he's been casting doubt on whether the original intention was to portray this or whether it's part of a later restoration of the tapestry, as Michael Lewis explains. The tapestry shows the famous scene of Harold getting shot by an arrow in the eye. Mm. Now, when people have looked at the back of the tapestry, they've seen that the threads that have been used to reconstruct the arrow eye 
Um, one are reconstructions, which seem to follow a line of holes, but also this line of holes goes over the top of the head of the individual believed to be Harold. So it seems to suggest that the arrow isn't actually going for his head, and it even could be part of a spear or something. Now, one of the people who's coming to talk at the conference, uh, Martin Foyce, he, he's going to talk about the fact that he believes that it's basically a 12th century story, you know, the, the Harold in the eye thing. And the fact is, obviously, the people who reconstruct the tapestry or restored the tapestry knew that. Yeah. And so they thought, well, you know, obviously I can see some little kind of holes going towards his face. This must be the arrow in the eye. And so they kind of reconstruct the arrow based on you know, more modern interpretation of it. So that, that's, I suppose, one example where, you know, analysis of the back of the tapestry and also the reconstructions of the tapestry kind of, of one might tell us more, but also demonstrate how, you know, history can kind of get distorted by yeah. people restoring things in a manner they think is, is what it shows rather than how it really does show it. Lewis himself has studied not the faces, but the objects portrayed in the tapestry. I mean, my, my thesis was basically to look at the archaeological authority of the tapestry and the extent to which the, the objects depicted in the tapestry reflect real, real life or not. Mm. And, and generally, um, my kind of thrust really is that most of it's indebted to manuscript art, that the, basically the designer is copying from contemporary manuscripts and he's also com copying artefacts. And that explains why certain you know, artefacts seem to be kind of archaic representations, if you like. So, for instance, the tapestry's buildings mm. um, are basically have more of a kin to what you'd find in manuscript art than what you'd probably expect to see if you went to see Hastings Castle mm. or, um, you know, some of the other structures depicted in the tapestry or, or Bayer Cathedral, for example. A lot of research has been focusing recently on the history of the tapestry itself. There's a general consensus that it was made within a dec or decade or two of the Norman Conquest, but after that, the first firm reference we have to it is in the inventory of the Cathedral of Bayeux in 1476. Where it was in the intervening four centuries, we can't be sure, though George Beach has suggested that it was in the Louvre in Paris between 1396 and 1430. Certainly, from the late 15th century to the present day, the tapestry has spent much of its time in Bayeux, though it was forcibly removed from there on a couple of occasions, once by Napoleon and then lastly by Hitler, who ordered a thorough investigation of the document. Shirley Ann Brown of Toronto's York University has been exploring the tapestry's brush with the Nazis, which helpfully was very well recorded by the German authorities. So what has she been uncovering in these curious archives? Oh, the incredible detail with which this was documented, right to the point of what class the investigators could travel the trains in <laughs> right. on the way to buy it. <laughs> but more importantly, I think that we're beginning to get back to the idea of the foundations as to why this was done and why the particular people were brought into the project, because it's the very first time that a team of people, of experts from a variety of different disciplines was brought together uh, to study the biotapestry. It was during the Second World War, then, that the tapestry was last removed from Bayeux. Its exile wasn't long, though, as since the early 1980s it's been on display in the same venue in the town from which it takes its name. The feature in the magazine this month considers whether its current exhibition space is suitable and asks whether there is any chance that the tapestry could be brought to Britain for display. But you'll have to read the magazine for that. OK, that's enough bio tapestry. Now, Sue is also in charge of our book review section. So, Sue, can you give us a, an idea of the best books that have come across your desk this month? 
Yes, um, the three books I've chosen this month, um, starting with Hitler, The Germans and the Final Solution by Ian Kershaw. Um, We've been enjoying this collection of the works of the acclaimed historian of the Holocaust, Sir Ian Kershaw. The book's three main sections deal with Hitler and the Final Solution, Popular Opinion and the Jews in Nazi Germany, and The Final Solution in Historiography. And together they show that Kershaw deserves his reputation as one of the foremost Holocaust historians. Kershaw is one of the the biggest scholars in this field, so um, obviously it's going to be a good book. But why why would we read it? Well, although it consists of well-known pieces that he's written over the last 30 years, it offers an excellent chance to acquire in a single volume his writings on the Holocaust. The, The classic essays in the first two sections will remain required reading for students of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust for years to come. Right, Okay. and your second choice? Okay. um, Vermeer's Hat, The 17th Century and the Dawn of the Global World by Timothy Brooke. That's a curious title. Well, it's the colourful story of how contact between various regions of the world became more intensive in the 17th century. Why would I want to read that? Well, it's interesting. It's got a novel approach. Um, He takes a number of items in uh, Vermeer's paintings as his starting points and uses them as entries in a series of global connections. So, for example, a beaver hat in one painting leads to French encounters with Native Americans, the opening up of the fur trade and the search for a route through North America to China. Sounds interesting. And finally, you've got uh, you've chosen David Abulathia's The Discovery of Mankind. Yes, um, it's it's subtitled Atlantic Encounters in the Age of Columbus. And to set the scene, it compares the early discovery of different peoples across the Atlantic with us today discovering life life elsewhere in our universe um, and the many consequences that would have for science, religion and history. And it's good because? Well, it um, very vividly conveys conveys the European fascination, um, confusion and puzzlement with the peoples of the Canary Islands, uh, the Caribbean and northeast Brazil. Um, It also records the changing attitudes which follows as the early years of cross-cultural contact were overtaken by the harsh reality of conquest and enslavement. Next, Rob Attar has been talking to Professor Tim Blanning of Cambridge University to find out which year he'd like to set the BBC History magazine time machine to. You've chosen 1876 for the Mm -hmm. time machine. Why is it you'd like to go back to 1876? I'd like to go back to 1876 because on the 13th of August in that year, a truly momentous event occurred in both the cultural and the political history of Europe. And that was the first performance of the Complete Ring Cycle by Wagner, Richard Wagner at Bayreuth. Why was it such a defining moment? Well, it can be approached in a number of ways, I think. Most obviously, one looks at the transformation in the status of the creative artist in general, and the musician in particular, or more specifically still, the composer. You may recall that Mozart was literally kicked out of the service of the Archbishop of Salzburg with a kick to my ass, as he put it in a right. letter to his, to his father. He was kicked out, not by the Archbishop personally. The Archbishop wouldn't soil himself. He got his Chamberlain, Count Arco, to do it. Well, that was 1781. In 1876, when the first performance of The Ring is staged at Bayreuth, probably the most powerful man on the continent of Europe anyway, namely Emperor William I of Germany, German emperor who created in 1871, of course, just five years earlier at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, feels it necessary to go to Bayreuth to attend the opening of the festival. And that suggests that a major change has occurred in the way in uh, which culture is viewed in general and music in particular. What do you think is the reason for this change? Aha. Well, there are all 
kinds of reasons for this change. The status of the artist has been, or the musician has been transformed, mainly, I think, because of the way in which the purpose of music is viewed. As a result of the Romantic Revolution of the late 18th, early 19th century, music is now regarded not as something which is, as it were, instrumentalized, I'm sorry, that's a rather unfortunate word to use, in which music is not subordinated to, let us say, representing the power of a ruler or the glory of God or providing recreation for the elites. In other words, it's no longer viewed as being representational or as recreational, but as essentially expressive. That's at the heart of the Romantic Revolution. It changes the purpose of culture from serving some other cause or patron to being artist-centered, that is, expressing what the artist feels inside himself or herself. And once that leap has been made from a work-centered to an artist-centered aesthetic, then the way is clear for music, which is the most expressive of all the art, then the way is clear for music to move to the top of the heap. And that is what happens. Beethoven is the great trailblazer, the great mold-breaker in this regard. Uh, and Wagner, who regarded himself very much as being in that tradition, of course, he's something of a megalomaniac, and he regarded Beethoven as playing John the Baptist to his Christ figure. Wagner sees himself as the heir of, of Beethoven and takes this to its logical conclusion. So that, I think, is what is at the heart of this transformation in the um, status of music and musician, which reaches its apotheosis. And I think for once that much overworked word can be used, that is the opening of the festival of Bayreuth in August 1876 represents the apotheosis of music and the musician. Who would you like to speak to if you were back in 1876? Wagner, please. What would you like to ask him? Well, of course, uh, every journalist, and I suppose that's the kind of role in which I would view myself, what's the question that every journalist asks, first of all? How do you feel? Meister, that's how he liked to be addressed, and that's how he was addressed by his adoring disciples. Meister, master, how do you feel? He'd come from nothing. I mean, he'd gone through years of terrible privation, exile, misery. And so there he is, standing outside the festival theater, which he himself has built, although, of course, he's not also an architect, so he couldn't design it. Nevertheless, I mean, as it appears through the designs of Semper and Buchwald, I mean, it's very much Wagner's creation. There he is in front of the theater, which he has created, for which he's primarily responsible in terms of its design, revolutionary in design, incidentally. Um, he's raised the money, He's recruited the singers and the orchestra in as much as the ring had a director. He was it. I mean, he'd done pretty well everything. Uh, and there he is with the, as I said earlier, the most powerful man on the European continent standing in front of him and shaking his hand and saying, I never thought you'd do it, but now the sun is shining on your work. That must be a pretty good moment. And I would have liked to hear from the master himself just what he was feeling at that time. And what do you think he would say? Well, we know what he actually, we know pretty well what he would say. He said, admittedly, this was on a later occasion, but I think this was probably what was running through his mind. He said, well, there have been plenty of examples in the past when an artist had been summoned by uh, princes, kings and emperors, but it hadn't happened that an emperor had come to him. Did people read a political message from the piece? Well, they may have done, but probably they read the wrong message. What it looks like is, I mean, you have a sequence, don't you? 1871, 1870, the Franco-Prussian War breaks out, the French are defeated. 1871, the German, uh, German Empire is created. Uh, William, King of Prussia, becomes German Emperor. 
1876 Wagner's Ring is performed, and uh, many people especially perhaps know uh, rather less than they ought to about what was happening. Wagner's music seems to be uh, sort of exemplifies the, the triumphalism and the bombast of this new empire. Whereas, in fact, it points in quite a different direction. One of the red threads which runs through the ring, it operates at all kinds of different levels, but one red thread which runs through it is a critique of power, that it is the lust for power, and that's what Albrecht does when he forswears love, uh, to seize the gold of the Rhine maidens and forge it into the ring that, that gives him absolute power, is that power corrupts, and that there is in this constant struggle which one finds throughout the ring between power and love, it is the demands of love which must be privileged. So in that sense, the message of the ring was diametrically opposed to the ethos of the new German Empire, with its triumphalism and its materialism. Famously, Adolf Hitler was a, quite a big fan of Wagner. Did he also misinterpret these works? Yes, he did. I'm sure he did. If Hitler uh, had understood what Wagner was not so much preaching as what he was exposing. If Hitler had understood what the ring was all about, he would have remained, uh, well, he would have realized what he was trying to do was fundamentally misguided and bound to end in disaster for everybody, including himself. So Wagner himself would probably be horrified by the, the Nazis and all they stood for, really. My belief is that he would have been absolutely horrified and appalled by the Nazis. He believed that Bismarck was, quote, a brutal barbarian, unquote. He was so appalled by the militarism of the German Empire after 1871 that he talked about, seriously talked about, emigrating to the United States of America so that his son, Siegfried, would not have to undergo military service in Germany. Coming back to 1876, is there anybody else at the performance you'd like to speak to? If one had the opportunity to talk to Wagner, would you really want to talk to Tchaikovsky? I didn't think so. Okay, so let's leave the time machine and come back up to date. And of course, this month it's July, so I'm going to ask Rob Attar for three things that history lovers should do this month. Rob, what's the first thing that we should do? Well, first off, uh, head down to Kelmarsh Hall in Northamptonshire on the 19th and 20th of July for the English Heritage Festival of History, which is a regular event. And there's going to be reenactments from throughout British history, lots of living history, there'll be lectures as well, and there'll be us. We'll, we'll be there, yes, We indeed. will be there, yes, we'll be there in our stool with our T-shirts. <laughs> Quite. OK, the second thing? Well, when you get home from the Festival of History on Saturday night, you can watch Hadrian on BBC Two. Dan Snow has been following in the footsteps of the famous emperor, looking at his legacy across Europe and North Africa. And that's on the 19th of July on BBC Two, but do check the listings for more information. Yeah, sounds like a good programme. And finally... Well, if that TV show has caught your imagination, why not head to the British Museum, where a major exhibition on Hadrian is opening on the 24th of July. They've got hundreds of artefacts from all over the former Roman Empire, and it looks like probably being the best exhibition of the summer. It's, it certainly does sound good. It's going to be in the uh, round reading room, like the Terracotta Warriors exhibition earlier this year, and I'm sure it will be good. Uh, and we've got a feature on Hadrian in our next issue, so keep an eye out for that. Now, remember, you can find out more details on all these items in the current issue of BBC History magazine, and indeed, to be reminded about history programming on TV and radio, you can sign up to our new weekly email service. Just go to www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash sign up for that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Okay, now for our last interview, uh, Rob has been talking to someone who was involved in making history himself. That's Jerry Roberts, who was a former Bletchley Park codebreaker. And he was talking to Rob about uh, his life at Bletchley Park and how he contributed to the end of the Second World War. How did you first become involved with code breaking at Bletchley Park? Well, in uh, 1941, I finished my degree in German and French at UCL in London. So uh, I had quite good German by the end of it. And uh, Bletchley was recruiting as many good German speakers as it could in order to be able to deal with their work. And... uh, It so happened that my professor uh, had worked in room 40 during the the Great War, the First World War, and room 40 was the sort of predecessor to um, Bletchley Park. So um, I suspect that he put my name forward and uh, they got in touch with me. Anyway, after uh, a few days, I received a, a letter asking me to go and have an interview at the war office where I was interviewed by major masters who asked me about my language and uh, my family to find out if I was respectable or not, and also whether I was interested in playing chess uh, and puzzles and so on. Well, I used to do crossword puzzles in the Observer, so I said I was just quite keen on all that. He didn't tell me what all this was in aid of. At the end, he said, would I be prepared, because the work I would work on was secret, to sign the Official Secrets Act. And I said, yes, of course. And uh, he then gave it to me to sign, 
the declaration, uh, but he didn't tell me what the work actually was. Anyway, a few days later, I was given instructions to go to Bedford, where the uh, Code and Cipher people had a school to uh, teach newcomers like me the basics of cryptography. And I uh, spent nearly six weeks there mugging up the, uh, the basics. And then a few days after that, uh, I was instructed to go to Bletchley Park itself and turned up at the, uh, at the gates and presented myself to the sentries there because it was pretty well guarded. And uh, shortly after that, I saw the very familiar old house there, a Victorian house, which was itself called Bletchley Park. And I'd arrived, as it were. When you got there, what was your role at Bletchley Park? Right from the start, I was a code breaker, a message breaker. And all the time that I spent there, from autumn of 1941 through to um, the end of the war in 45. Uh, I was working on cryptographic work, breaking messages. Most exciting kind of work, actually. Uh, when you started getting a, a, a break on something, and it began to develop this most exciting thing in the world. And the first uh, work that I was put on to used a cipher system called Double Playfair, which um, is quite a simple system. Uh, it was used by the uh, German military police for their messages, and uh, that doesn't sound terribly useful, but in fact, they always included the name of the unit they were sending from and the place where they were stationed. So it helped, all helped to build up a picture of where the German army was stationed. And this is called order of battle. And information of that kind is pretty precious. So in, in that sort of way, it was useful. The system is quite a simple one. I remember actually playing with it when I was still at school. It even had a sort of 19th century flavor about it, the kind of thing which might have turned up in a Conan Doyle story. And I worked in that area for six or seven months. After that, what kind of codes were you working on, and how did you go about cracking them? After about six or seven months, the unit that we had there, which was run by a Captain Tester at that time, and then consisted of Peter Erickson, Dennis Oswald, and myself, was then moved lock, stock, and barrel to work on something new because um, a man called Bill Tutt had broken the cipher system, which was first called Tunny and then later called Fish. And the first messages broken proved that it was so important, the stuff going through there, that they had to uh, set up something special to take advantage of it. And so the three of us were moved across in July 1942, Tut having broken it in the spring of that year, which was an amazing achievement. Turing had done a lot of very valuable work on the uh, Enigma cipher system, but he'd seen the machine. In fact, you could buy machines, the Enigma machines, uh, in the right places. And uh, so he was able to study it, see exactly how it worked, and so forth. Tut had a very different and difficult problem. He'd never seen the machine. Nobody had. It was much more complex, and uh, so he had to work out what he was dealing with. And eventually, the 
fish system was proven to be much more complex than Enigma. And our cryptographic work, the approach that we had, the Germans used certain expressions fairly frequently. And in the early stages, they were very sloppy in using fish, the cipher system. You're supposed to never use the same settings of a machine twice to send messages. In other words, once you've sent a message, you should change all the settings before you send another one. And the German operators didn't do this, luckily for us. And this meant that we had quite a lot of messages which were sent using the same encipherment. The cryptographer can make what's called depths out of these. You uh, add them together and you, you can then take one piece of clear, add it to the result, and it should give you, if you're in the right place, another piece of clear. You add two messages together, you then got a, a joint cipher stream, and you then add a test piece of clear to that at, at different places. And if you find one place where it gives another piece of clear, then you've got gold dust, you know that you've got a start. Now, the Germans used two things which were very good standbys. In the German army, a lot of units, subunits, were labeled Roman something or other, and uh, they used that expression Roman frequently. They abbreviated it to Rhen, R-O-E-N, and they put a divider in front and behind, which we uh, showed as the, the, the figure nine. So you had nine room nine, giving you six places of possible clear. And if you added that at the right place, then you would get bits of German, which looked genuine, and you could then work them backwards and forwards. And this is what we had to do. There was another standby, which was punctuation. If they wanted to indicate a full stop, they used the letter M, but so that it wouldn't be muddled in with actual text, they put an indicator plus plus in front of it. And then when coming out of it, they put 88. So you might have plus plus M indicating a full stop, 889 going back into text. And this gave us another six place crib to use. And we would look for that in, in the more difficult ones because quite often you couldn't break it that way. We would look for typical German endings. Ungen, U-N-G-E-N, was a frequent one. Or Kaiten, K-E-I-T-E-N, was a, a frequent one. And this is where being a linguist helped a great deal. And so we uh, used these cribs to get a, a start on the message. And then once you've got a start, and you'd probably uh, have the end of one word and the beginning of another, and you would have to use your imagination to try different continuations of words both ways and then see what result they gave in the first message. And if that gave good German, you would know that you were on the right track. You might, for instance, in the second message, get nine indicating a space, G-E-S. You might uh, try gesandt, sent, which would be a frequent word. And if that produced good, clear in the other message, 
then you carried on. It might be geschlossen, closed, might be geschickt, another word for sent, and so on. And here, being a German linguist was invaluable because you had a, a substantial vocabulary to use, which you could test. And so you would push the text on, and eventually we would make a break of about 50 or 60 words, places in both messages, and that was sufficient to establish the wheel patterns of the machine, because the longest wheel had 61 places. So the 12 wheels gave an extremely complex encipherment. You had five wheels which moved every position, and you had five wheels which only moved when the last two wheels, so-called motor wheels, moved them on. And so that varied a lot, and we had to find, by deciphering text from these so-called depth, these pairs of messages, we were able to get at the uh, wheel patterns, and that would establish the basis for deciphering the whole of the traffic on that day. It shows how careless the Germans were. If they hadn't done that, we would never have broken the uh, system. So that was some of the techniques that we used in breaking. And in fact, we succeeded in breaking something more than 95% of the traffic that was passed to us for uh, the breaking. Uh, in early 1944, the situation became more difficult because the Germans tightened up their methods and didn't send depth anymore. So we had to find a different way. And luckily, just at this time, Tommy Flowers had developed a machine, the first computer ever, called Colossus. And this machine was used to take off the effect of one set of the wheels, the chi wheels, the ones that move regularly. Their effect was taken out, and we had to look at the ciphertext remaining and establish so-called patterns of the psi wheels. This gets rather complicated, but we still managed to get a very high proportion, well over 90% of all the messages were um, were deciphered. So what kind of information were you getting from the fish code? We were getting the messages between army headquarters at one end and uh, the generals and field marshals in charge of the army groups at the other. And the material was absolutely top-level stuff. They would report on the problems they had to um, headquarters. Headquarters would tell them what to do about it. Headquarters would give them the topmost strategic instructions as to what they were going to be expected to do in the near future and instructions on how to do it. Movement of armies, movement even of army groups from one area to another. So this was strategic stuff of the utmost value. How important do you think the work you did with the fish cipher was to the British war effort? Well, it was absolutely fundamental. Well, let me give you two examples, if I may, sure. because that illustrates it far better than anything else I can say. The best-known one is uh, the situation before D-Day, where the British had tried to persuade the Germans 
that we were going to land in the Calais region and not where we actually planned to land, which was in the Normandy region. And it was vital to know whether the Germans had swallowed the bait. Well, there was a most interesting situation because the German generals of the army didn't swallow the bait. They thought we'd land in Normandy. But Hitler was convinced that we planned to land in the Calais region. It was simpler. There was only a 20-mile sea voyage. It was the obvious place to land. But luckily, we didn't land in the obvious place. We went for the Normandy beaches. However, it was essential for us to know where the Germans expected us to make our attack. And fortunately, Hitler prevailed over his generals, and so the forces defending the Normandy beaches were lighter than they would have been. And a great bulk of German forces, including tanks, which were so important, was kept up in the Calais region instead of being drafted down to Normandy, where they could have done terrible damage to our troops as they were trying to land. In particular, there was uh, Hitler made a decision to keep one major tank division in reserve, and he kept it near Paris, well away from the fighting on the beaches, for five days until he himself could see whether the uh, Allies were landing northwards in Calais or southwards on the Normandy beaches. And um, eventually, of course, it became clear where we were landing. But even then, the Americans were about to launch a paratroop division in a certain area, which was going to help the, the landings. And they discovered in the nick of time that a new division, German division, had been put into that area. And if the paratroopers had been landed, they would have been shot to pieces before they even touched ground. So they were promptly moved to land somewhere else. And this saved a lot of lives, as well as keeping the initiative. Now, the second example, and there were many other examples, because after the landings, of course, we knew what the Germans were going to do defensively. We knew where they were going to put their defensive point and how they were going to defend the Rhine and so forth. And so we were able to take all this into account in planning uh, Montgomery's attacks and the movements forward by the Americans, by the Allies, towards Germany, and that gave tremendous help. But the other example happened much earlier than either of these. I mentioned that we were breaking fish on the Russian front, and we were giving information to the Russians, although we had to disguise it as information we got from spies or from letters intercepted or anything but fish, because we didn't tell the, the Russians we were breaking fish. The Germans had tried to break through the Russian line at Stalingrad, and after the most bitter battle, of course, they had lost, and they were pushed back. Well, in March 43, they made a decision to try again, and they began to build up troops in April 43 in the region of Kursk, and the Germans built up forces there for a big push, and we were able to warn the Russians 
was that this was going to happen. We were able to tell them how the attack was going to be made. It was going to be a pincer attack. And we were able to tell them even what divisions, what units were going to be used. Now, this was significant for Britain as well, because if the Germans had broken through there, there was a chance that the Germans, having used their troops successfully there and pushed the Russians back or even rolled them up, might transfer those army group to the Western Front, and there they would be used to invade Britain. Now, those are two examples of how the information was used, but there were many others. And that was Jerry Roberts. Now, don't forget to visit our website, www.bbchistorymagazine.com, to find out more about the magazine. There you'll also be able to sign up for our new weekly email telling you what history programmes are coming up on TV and the radio in the next few days. And if you want to take advantage of the free magazine offer for UK podcast listeners, all you need to do is call 0844 848 0098, quoting the code HIFREE08, and you'll be sent a free copy of the magazine. Great. Thanks, Sue. Uh, That's the end of the podcast. I hope you'll join us all next month when we'll be finding out about Captain Cook and the Hundred Years' War. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.